Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We are continuing our series of discussions breaking down the results of the 2022 elections here in New York and a little bit of what was going on nationally as well and how New York fits into the national picture, especially considering Republican strong performance here in New York that is contributing to the Republican flip of the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, a really startling outcome here in New York as Democrats nationally overperformed, but they underperformed in New York and the shape of the New York congressional delegation shifting significantly. Not only did New York lose one seat after the latest census and the redistricting process, but the congressional delegation to the House of Representatives from New York is going to the from the current 19 Democrats and eight Republicans to what will be a delegation of 15 Democrats and 11 Republicans, again, accounting for one uh, lost seat after the census. So there's 26 House districts in New York that were on the ballot this fall, Democrats winning 15 of them, Republicans winning 11. Those 11, including flipping multiple House seats on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley, and Republicans having a very strong election in New York. That also got at the top of the ticket where Democrats staved off catastrophe by Governor Kathy Hochul winning, but winning by a far narrower margin than many people expected going into this election, far narrower than former Governor Andrew Cuomo's three wins, narrower than Elliot Spitzer's win before that. But Governor Kathy Hochul won 53% to 47% over Republican Lee Zeldin. She gets to keep being the governor. That's important. She's the first woman to ever be governor and now the first woman to ever win a term as governor of New York. And she gets to uh, remake state government, remake the state Democratic Party as she sees fit, more or less. Uh, But coming out of the elections... There are a lot of fingers being pointed at her, and there are a lot of fingers being pointed at the state Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, who also runs the Nassau County Democrats and Republicans doing so well in Nassau County and the rest of Long Island in this election, buoyed by Lee Zeldin, a congressman from Long Island. Uh, A lot of fingers being pointed at Jay Jacobs, at Kathy Hochul for the type of campaign that she ran and their lack of help to down-ballot candidates that included losses in the state legislature, multiple losses in the assembly, some losses in the state Senate, though Democrats making up for those state Senate losses elsewhere in other races and either keeping their supermajority or very close. Democrats will have wide, wide majorities or supermajorities in both houses of the state legislature. Obviously, Democrat Kathy Hochul and other statewide office holders all keeping their seats. So Democrats still dominant in New York, but it's the House of Representatives really where uh, push came to shove and Democrats underperformed in New York, leading to this uh, national flip of the House going into the election cycle. Nobody really thought that in the first midterm year of Democratic President Joe Biden, that Democrats would really have that much of a shot to keep the House. But then they did, it turned out. But then losses in New York and some elsewhere uh, contributing to a narrow Republican House majority that's coming into the picture here and will take hold come January. Democrats will retain a slim majority in the U.S. Senate led by New York's Chuck Schumer as majority leader. That's very important for New York. But we're now moving from Democrats controlling the presidency with narrow majorities in both houses of Congress to divided government in 
Washington and in Congress, and that will be making for a very interesting next two years in Washington and lots of questions about what will and will not be able to get done there leading up to the 2024 presidential election. Donald Trump, the former president, and announcing his campaign for 2024 just after these elections. And Joe Biden has continued to express his intent to run, although not formally declaring a campaign. So that's on the horizon. We'll see what other Democrats, Republicans, who actually winds up being in the presidential race. But in 2024, the full House of Representatives is on the ballot again. Lots of different U.S. Senate seats. And so the 2024 elections basically have already started uh, right after these 2022 elections finished. We won't get into that too much right now. But um, we are continuing to break it all down here on Max Politics. I've had a series of very interesting post-election conversations here on the show, continuing that with this episode here. You're about to hear my conversation with L. Joy Williams, a prominent Democratic strategist, the president of the Brooklyn NAACP, the host of Sunday Civics on Sirius XM. Uh, I was a guest with her on that show quite a while back now, but had a lot of fun on Sunday Civics. It's a really interesting uh, show that covers a whole lot of territory and really tries to be educational, as the name gets at. L. Joy Williams has worked on lots of different types of campaigns. You'll hear in this conversation, she's worked with uh, people on the sort of left flank of the Democratic Party, more towards the center. She's got deep roots in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Democratic Party, also having a lot of fingers uh, pointed at. So a conversation momentarily with Eljo Williams about what's going on with the New York State Democratic Party, what's going on with the Brooklyn Democratic Party, uh, what happened in the governor's race with Kathy Hochul winning by such a narrow margin, why did Democrats lose a bunch of these other seats? Does Eljo Williams want to run the state Democratic Party? Her name has been floated as a possible replacement for Jay Jacobs. A whole bunch in this conversation here that you'll hear in just a moment with Eljoy Williams. Very briefly, let me point to some other conversations that I've recently had here on Max Politics, breaking down the 2022 election results. You can find recent conversations with a series of great guests, all talking about the elections, covering a little bit of similar ground, but also covering a lot of different ground, some really interesting different perspectives. I've had recent conversations with Republican Joe Borelli, the minority leader of the New York City Council, who was a spokesperson for a super PAC supporting Lee Zeldin in the governor's race. He's also been a big supporter of Donald Trump in the past, but talked to him about where that support stands, but also what happened in the in the New York governor's race and these other races in New York. A uh, conversation with Basil Smichel Jr., a Democratic strategist, a professor, and the former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party about what's going on with the state party, what happened with Hochul's campaign, and much more. Find that conversation as well. A conversation with Alexis Grinnell, another Democratic strategist and a writer on gender and politics about what happened in the governor's race and much more Find that conversation. And then lastly, I'll highlight for now another great conversation with Chris Walsh, the campaign manager for Pat Ryan, who is the only Democrat in this election that just concluded to win a swing House district in New York. 
Pat Ryan won a special election this past summer to replace Antonio Delgado in Congress after Delgado resigned from Congress to become lieutenant governor of New York. And then Pat Ryan had to run for Congress in a different district because he was finishing the current term in one district, but the maps all changed for the general election here this fall. So the district had some crossover, but he had to win a whole nother tough swing election and won that as well. So he's been currently representing for just a few months, the 19th congressional district. He'll switch to having won the 18th congressional district and represent that for the next two years in Congress. But Pat Ryan, the only example of any uh, House Democratic candidate here in this 2022 general election to win a swing district. Democrats lost all the seats on Long Island, including two that Republicans flipped. They lost other Hudson Valley seats, including Sean Patrick Maloney losing his seat, the DCCC chair, but Pat Ryan standing out. So I spoke with his campaign manager, Chris Walsh, who also happened to be the campaign manager for Brad Landers, uh, sort of underdog win in the 2021 New York City Comptroller race, a very different race. We mostly talked about the Pat Ryan wins, but we got at sort of general principles that Chris Walsh has about winning elections and candidates and messaging and campaigning. So a really interesting conversation there as well. So that's a series of conversations about the elections that we just had. Find any or all of them at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. But that's only after you listen to this one with Eljoy Williams. And I'm pleased to be joined now by Eljoy Williams, a Democratic strategist, the president of the Brooklyn NAACP, and the host of Sunday Civics on Sirius XM. Thanks for being here. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's talk big picture here before we dig into some specifics. What were two or three or however many you want to list of the of the big reasons from your perspective that Democrats underperformed in New York while overperforming nationally? What happened in New York in the 2022 elections here that would lead Democrats to win statewide races by smaller margins than than normal in these modern times uh, and lose several House seats, a number of state legislative seats? What happened here in New York? Big picture from your diagnosis as a Democratic strategist. Well, big picture is something that I've been saying for some time is that we continue to only speak to and engage a small amount of our base voters. And we have a an ability um, really to engage um more people into the process. And we kind of go, and I'm saying we collectively, because, you know, we can get to individual races um, later, but, you know, we don't continue to talk to people, to engage people, to grow um, who we are speaking to and therefore who um, we then turn out come an election day. Um, I think also, Uh, Because we had so many elections (laughs) leading up to November, right, Um, for a lot of people, it's hard to keep momentum up, right, because some there are a lot of primaries, then the primaries off and then it was shifted to a different time and, you know, sort of keeping both campaigns and uh, candidates and others actively engaged in that process is difficult and expensive, (laughs) to be honest. Right. And so when you don't have a large base of a well of folks, people didn't want to confuse folks. Um, You know, we had the August primary and then, you know, going to November. So there is a lot happening in this landscape. 
I know right now the going theme is to blame everything on one person. We'll probably talk about that later. Um, But there is a lot happening in the political landscape in New York that I think contribute um, to what we've seen. I think the other piece uh, is while, yes, we need to do a better job um, as Democrats overall because we have the room to grow, I think we uh, also can't underestimate how the obviously the changes of redistricting in certain districts impacted certain races in certain um, parts of the state, um, as well as how things were messaged um, or engaged across the state. Um, you know, and when you have someone just thinking about Long Island, you know, where I worked a little bit, um, who comes from that particular area who is able um, to galvanize and energize people, granted in a different way (laughs) than I would would have preferred. Um, You know, people are enraged, engaged, um, and they end up turning out. And so it's a combination of things. Um, I don't think from all of the coverage that we can sort of blame one thing solely. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's the, the landscape is a combination of a lot of things. And you refer there, obviously, to the fingers being pointed at the New York State Democratic Party chair, Jay Jacobs, a lot of people calling for uh, his his replacement as as the leader of the state Democratic Party. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute, as you got at also Jay Jacobs being from Long Island, you know, part of the reason that that people are pointing the finger at him because of how poorly Democrats did on Long Island, how well Republicans did. And that was two straight elections after some real warnings in the 2021 local races there for county executive role and uh, district attorney roles and so forth. Um, but say more about Democrats and communication to voters. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of the issues at play in these elections were issues that, you know, were national, that were at play a lot of other places, but seem to, for some reason in New York, work against Democrats more than elsewhere on crime, on cost of living, inflation, the economy, that bucket of issues. Meanwhile, Democrats, of course, had some wind at their backs related to protecting the idea of protecting abortion rights in New York, keeping what's in place, maybe expanding services elsewhere in the country, you know, fighting against Republican rollbacks, um, democracy issues, you know, these these four or five big issues, but they seem to have played differently in New York. Do you have an assessment of why that was on some of these big ticket items? Was it Republicans just hammering the issue of public safety over and over again and Democrats, especially the governor, not really responding with the with a a good defense and and going on the offense a bit more. What's your diagnosis of why in New York, where, where a lot of the issues were similar to around the country, things seem to have landed differently? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm always in favor of being on the offense instead of defense. And I think overall um, that the way that um, some in our state are consistently on in defensive mode and in terms of issues of public safety is problematic because we have a great story to tell as Democrats about how we're moving forward the public safety conversation. And, you know, I I would speak to and look at the base of the uh, vote 
voters in the base of the win for the governor, um, which is uh, communities of color, particularly black voters who are very astute um, at looking at the issue of public safety, who are um, our communities are disproportionately impacted by issues of public safety, who know very well that we can have a balanced approach about public safety in our communities in reducing crime, gun trafficking and things of that nature, while also not um, abandoning civil rights and progress on justice reform overall. Um, it is communities of color who are closest to the problem, um, who live this every day, who understand the nuances of this. And so it doesn't do us a good service to ignore what communities like mine, like ours, are experiencing and can walk out the door and see, <laughs> you know, it's not, um, you can't dismiss it, right? But you can double down and saying, look, we've, you know, made these investments. We've changed this law that we know has disproportionately impacted communities of color. This is how we're going to continue to address issues of public safety. And here's our next steps on that, right? So that like that, um, I think uh, of not dismissing what people are experiencing and you can't dismiss what um, the media narrative is in the landscape as well. Now, we <laughs> we all know how uh, media outlets like I would say like the Post who absolutely does not like New York City does not <laughs> at all. It's, you can't tell that, that they do from the, the way that they cover the city, right? Um, but if you have that blanket consistent media happening, um, there has to be a counter narrative um, because if people aren't hearing from you, if people don't know a campaign is going on, you know, if you're not engaged until the last couple of weeks of the election, like that is the narrative that people are responding to. There's a reason why campaigns spend as much money as they do on TV and on media overall is because it helps shape the conversation, right? It <laughs> determines what everybody should be talking about. Um, and I think for issues like um, uh, reproductive uh, access, you know, voters are a little smart, right? It's like, I know this is not going to be an issue in New York. And because I'm getting the political landscape analysis that I have to help in places like Pennsylvania, I have to help in Georgia, right? They're getting more coverage of what needs to happen in those states where there is a battleground than they are about what's happening in their own state, all right? Um, particularly the uh, uh, media uh, um center that we have, right, which focuses on national news as well. Um, and so where people get the information of what's happening locally is what they are experiencing themselves, but then also what is being covered in daily papers and in, in, in daily shows. So I think um, folks were attuned to those issues such as reproductive justice, um, the Biden administration um, attempting to address and keep its promise on student loans, all of those things, um, but also doubling down on focusing on outside of the state and not so much as what is at stake here in the state of New York. And I think that was what's missing is that while we're fighting, yes, um, across the country and New York can be a stopgap in terms of the attorney general going after the former president, going after corporations and things of that nature, there wasn't a good narrative about how we are digging down in the state of New York and why we need to also fight here. And yes, there was a little bit of, you know, we can't um, let Zeldin, you know, who is just a repeat of Trump, 
um, you know, come here to New York, but people didn't think it was real, right? Like it was, you know, it was something conceptual. Um, it wasn't something that people thought, oh, this could this could happen here. At least maybe not till the very end where there were some polls uh, setting off some alarm bells and there was a real rallying of some major Democratic figures coming in to campaign with Governor Hochul and uh, and some real sort of rallying the troops to make sure that people knew about the election at the 11th hour, so to speak. Um, Say a little bit more about um, messaging, organizing. What did you see and not see from the governor's campaign? Do you agree with the assessment that the governor's lack of aggressive campaigning for much of the race, sort of a Rose Garden strategy, lots of TV ads, but not a lot of local outreach? Do you think that that was as big a problem as some are saying? And did it ultimately really hurt some of these state Senate candidates, state assembly candidates and and House candidates. What's your assessment of the campaign that the governor ran and the impact on her winning margin, which, again, a win is a win. That's important. She's going to get four years to govern. But on that relatively narrow margin and the impact down ballot. You know, I, I again, would go back to the landscape, right? Because um, we forget how many elections that happened before we got to November. Um, and we forget um, in terms of how, um, you know, over that summer from even August to November, um, I think is the period that most people are talking about in terms of lack of uh, lack of campaigning. Um, and, you know, I would say that, Sure. Looking back, there are some things that I think the um, gubernatorial campaign could have done um, much more that would actually have bolstered uh, turnout in some in some key places. Um, But I think that overall, the campaign was focused on making sure that we did get to a win in terms of um, the on in the governor's column. Right. So that she would not be considered as someone who did not, (laughs) you know, win an election. Right. Um, That just um, uh, assumed the role. Um, And I think there's a lot of moving parts in the state to manage. Right. Um, New York City and its political apparatus is not the same as Long Island, is not the same as Hudson Valley. And really, the candidates that come from those areas um, and the campaigns need to campaign differently because they have a different voter base. And I think the uh, sophistication and making sure that we have a party apparatus that understands that, that you cannot run a campaign the same way in all parts of the state. Um, and that different parts of the state need different resources, um, need different nuanced messaging, even though there's an overall message. I think the other part is um, that that comment um, that I have seen and I agree with about a cohesive message from the top that others could pull from. I think, you know, for a lot of the campaigns, they had their own individual messaging um, as it relates to their campaign, which you do, but it did not feed into a larger overall um, uh, vision and goal for the state and for the party um, that 
everybody could kind of singularly, you know, tweak mm-hmm. and define um, as necessary in terms of their, you know, their local politics. But there wasn't one rallying cry that everybody could get around um, that was on the posters, that was on like the messaging piece. There wasn't sort of that coordination of messaging and talkers um, that we're used to seeing from a coordinated campaign perspective that does happen on, you know, presidential or larger campaigns that was kind of missing. And just one, uh, take one more moment on that. Do you see the real um, deeper flaws in the state Democratic Party beyond that messaging in terms of the organizing and the and the sort of get out the vote efforts and uh, not not just get out the vote at the very end of a campaign, but really having the infrastructure in place to have a well run sort of Democratic Party apparatus? Is that badly missing in New York and something in need of building out? Well, it's fractured. I would say, because, you know, the Democrats are a big tent. Right. And so I think in different aspects of the party, um, they are able to galvanize the 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 new moniker of the new progressives. Right. They're they're rallying around um, being the new leadership, making sure that it's younger and speaking to the issues um, that you know, they have defined are the issues of the day. Um, You know, Working Families Party certainly has its own um, way to sort of mobilize and organize people. So it's fractured because, you know, also in the Hudson Valley, there's a different aspect. And then as you go further up the state and particularly in rural parts of the state, you know, um, they are raising flags all the time and saying, hey, pay attention to what we the issues that we have up here, you know. Let me just take a moment to say you're listening to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette here with Eljoy Williams, a Democratic strategist, the president of the Brooklyn NAACP, and the host of Sunday Civics on Sirius XM. Eljoy's name, we should mention, has been floated as a potential next leader of the New York State Democratic Party. So, Eljoy, as you're diagnosing some of what's going on here, as we're talking about with a lack of cohesive message, with a lack of cohesive organizing, with lack of resources in some places around the state, as you're just talking about, does the state Democratic Party need new leadership? I think um, rather than focusing on an individual, I think what needs to happen is that the party overall needs a new and refreshed focus. And this is the opportunity to do so, right? We have 13 to 18 months before the next presidential, which we'll see in, you know, in general, larger turnout um, happen. But we can try out some things. We can put some infrastructure in place as um, from the party standpoint point to really build on that cohesive messaging, that cohesive structure um, throughout the state um, to make sure that some some of those areas that we lost um, this last this midterm cycle, we might be able to regain in a presidential year with greater turnout with, you know, um, either the same or, or different candidates. And I think you know, really honestly, with the governor now having the full, you know, elected term, you know, perhaps just getting to this point and then being able to define her own um, leadership and her own structure as head of the party was coming anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really the opportunity for those of us who have been um asking for, demanding and hollering that we really have a party that um, is renewed 
um, and put in place that can really deeply penetrate in some of these areas um, where, you know, we've just given up. Um, and if you don't have you know, this strong arm person at the top of the part at the top of the ticket or and also at the top of the party in the former governor. Right. Who was just running it based upon his own politics. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you build a structure now that is uh, uplifting to Democratic voters and the overall um, uh, people of the state of New York? That's what we really, really need to focus on. To, to do a lot of that and to improve the the sort of organization, the functioning of the state Democratic Party, is it um, just sort of a, a reset that's needed and saying, OK, what leadership do we have where what what you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses and just sort of taking a whole new sort of landscape approach and saying we need to really start beefing up the resources that we're putting into local party entities or or how does that look what is what is yeah. what are actually the the couple of biggest steps that are needed to sort of regroup and then re-strengthen or strengthen anew the um you know the state democratic party apparatus because some people say as you just said you know there's a, there's localized strengths and weaknesses some places are better organized than others but it's a very localized thing and and there's not necessarily a lot happening from the state to to bring in resources and then distribute them and and maybe that's not needed but what are what are a couple of the sort of concrete things that you think would be best for the governor and if she's keeping Jay Jacobs or she winds up replacing him after giving him a little time to reassess or whatever it might be but whatever it is as you get at Kathy Hochul here is going to be the leader of the New York State Democratic Party uh, whether there's a different chair of the actual state party apparatus or a different executive director or whatever it is. So she's in leadership now, government, politics. Um, what are what are a couple of the things that concretely need to be done from her leadership to, to re- reassess and re-energize and renew the party? Yeah, there are a couple of things that I think are easy. Um, so one is um, really... Uh, some infrastructure and uh, building, right? Um, So I, for one, would not want uh, the governor and whoever the leadership of the state party to get into the nitty gritty of what's happening on some of these local parties, right? That would be a whole whole other mess Uh (laughs) that um, would really distract and take away attention from really what needs to happen. So I'm not at all advocating um, for the state party to get involved in all of the minutia of what's happening in the local parties. Parties. However, there are some things that the party can sort of rise above and providing training um, for uh, staff and infrastructure, um, resources and materials for local parties um, and our um, democratic infrastructure. You know, for instance, in some of these places across the country, uh, across the state where you had like campaign staff um, imported from other places. Right. Like, why are we why are we getting, you know, and you know, shout out to other strategists yeah. and campaign managers and field workers from like Wisconsin and Iowa. Love it that you want to come to New York. Great. But like we don't have an infrastructure that's really developing talent within the state. Um, you know, that's a problem. Right. And I think that's something that the state party can really invest in and in doing uh, trainings and boot camps throughout the state to really grow um uh, the uh, people power that we have. And it's also a galvanizing tool, 
right? Um, we do this with uh, higher heights in my um, service as national chair of that and helping to elect black women where we do training not only for candidates, um, but we do training for staff um, and for field staff and volunteers and other things like that. That is a way to galvanize and bring people into the party and bring people into um, the political operation as well. Um, and I think that's something that is a, a, a big, you know, immediate thing that can uh, be, again, an organizing tool, but also build the talent that we need throughout the state. Um, because I would like field workers, you know, in the Hudson Valley to come from Hudson Valley and really know the communities and know the leadership and people there to really assist. The same thing with communications. I can't tell you the amount of people who are looking for competent communication um, folks on not only on their campaigns, the government staff or things of that nature to really build that sort of talent bank, I think is a way that we can organize and galvanize people um, and would also go a long way in terms of messaging and messaging discipline as well. Mm-hmm. And is is leadership of the state Democratic Party something you're interested in if the governor indicated that she was <laughs> If the governor indicated she was uh, looking to make a change, is that something where you, you know, you would indeed entertain the conversation or even assertively sort of throw your hat in the ring? Oh, absolutely. I have always wanted to, it's been on my, you know, professional bucket list for a very long time um, to work with the state party to really um, do some of the things that I'm mentioning uh, Mm -hmm. to actually dig down and expand who we are talking to and who is engaging um, in our political process overall. And, you know, for me, you know, whether it's a party partisan situation or even it's a nonpartisan situation in terms of of the city or the state overall, we have so many people, um, the largest group that, you know, is not (laughs) um, uh, that we need to speak to in terms of a focus group are people who are not participating in the process at all. Right. And so how do we continue to grow that? And in a place like New York, where Democrats are eight to one, majority of those people who are not engaged in the process are Democrats. They've already self-selected and said that this is their political ideology. Right. So it's an easy um, thing, right, to even work in the party apparatus to really engage people and throw the doors open for people to get involved in the process. So I'm not shy at all um, (laughs) about saying that I would love to be part of the team that really thinks about um, what this looks like in the future and building to a, a, a better operation as we head into the presidential election soon. One of the things that needs to happen in the Democratic Party clearly is more bridging of the divide between the progressives and the moderates for a you know lack of a more nuanced description. People's politics can be all over the place, but you know, there's very often obviously these two two camps, lots of elections, uh intraparty affairs being fought. Lots of primaries. Yeah, lots of primaries being fought between people more on the left, people a little bit more on the center. It, it gets complicated, as you you well know, and lots of uh, listeners here well know. But there's big divides there. And some people have said part of the reason that Democrats were you know caught off guard here in this in this more competitive general election atmosphere is because they've been so focused on fighting these intraparty battles, especially in New York City, but not just in New York City. And that, you know, Jay Jacobs, for example, has been more you know, focused on sort of fighting the left than he is on fighting the right. Um, but but again, Jay Jacobs aside, 
steps need to be taken to sort of bridge that divide and, and say, I don't know. I mean, you, you tell me, uh, this is the question for you, but in some respects, sort of like there might be ongoing battles in primaries, but boy, do we you know need to come together more for generals. I mean, one of the things I find interesting and, and tell me what, what you think of this is there are a lot of calls right now on the left about, you know, Jake Jacobs has to go and he's more interested in fighting the left, as I said, you know, this type of thing. But also the people on the left are trying to take out a whole lot of moderates and centrists, right? And I, I, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I see people on the left, you know, saying how how the you know the moderates and the center are so focused on you know hating on the left. It's like, well, you're you're trying to take a lot of them out of power. So I don't I don't know, you know. But I think the point still does get back to what happens in some of the general elections. Then, what what do you think about all this? I, I've said enough yeah. here. But, uh, what what <laughs> well, do you think about that? As someone who's um, often in the middle of the battle, you're, yeah, you're you're around, you're you're around all of it, yeah, yeah, because you know, um, I fully believe in um, black elected leadership um, that has been developing and has been moving for some time, particularly in Brooklyn and you know New York City overall, um, that are often viewed as the centrist, as the moderates, which is very hilarious to me, um, knowing from a historical standpoint. Um, and then I've also done things like Cynthia Nixon's campaign, right, where, I, you know, really in challenging. So I sit at the intersection of that. So some people who are perceived to be more left um, consider me moderate and centrist. And then the moderate and centrist folks um, often use the phrase, you know, joy in her progressives. And I'm like, so like I'm right, <laughs> like right. in the center of, of all this. But I think overall, um, you know, what people really want is um, uh, th- there are two camps, I-, I would say. There are the folks that, you know, we have more in common e- politically and also on issues than we do, obviously, with the party that ex- uh, that exists in terms of the Republican Party that exists in its current iteration. Right. Um, and we certainly have more in common and we can find commonalities for us to move t- together um, towards those issues. And that's the problem when you have big tent, right, is that there are a lot of people in it um, and in our politics overall, um, you know, there are some people that probably shouldn't be in the same party, but because of our two party system, this right. is what we are, right? <laughs> like, you, you know, we can't fix that overnight. There's a lot of um, things that would need to be done to, to change that. <laughs> so we're in this two party system, you know, in the ideal world, we wouldn't be, but we have some of the same um, uh, same common issues and we should focus on that. That is a difference, I think, than people who are really just want to be the ones in charge. Um, and knowing the difference between those, um, there are, yes, some people that do need to be challenged, do need to um, sometimes be primaried, although from a party pr- uh, perspective, you know, maybe the party shouldn't be involved in, you know, party, yeah. Yeah. you know, prim- in, in primaries. Um, but there are some people who do uh, need that and to be challenged in that way. Um, but there is a very difference between people who are just challenging. You no longer have the same issues. Um, you no longer carry the same values. Um, you need to be primary. You need to be challenged, things of that nature. To, or we can work together to sort of get to a better place versus people who's just like, I just want to change um, and I want to be the one making the decisions. 
you know, for me, even here locally in Brooklyn, I know very well the difference between those two. You know, there are people who, when brought to the table behind closed doors and sometimes, you know, in front of cameras, can work collaboratively because the ultimate goal is a policy issue or getting something addressed, whether it be housing, whether it be our economy or things of that nature. And then there are other people, it, do, it doesn't matter if you bring them to the table. It doesn't matter, you know, if you are working collaboratively for the greater good of the people, they just want to be the one with the title and, um, you know, with uh, the power. Um, and that's in politics in general, right, is understanding the difference between that. So I think overall, yes, I think, uh, you know, staying out of primaries where necessary. Um, obviously, people do things behind closed doors and for their own personal vendettas. But I do think that there is more commonality um, for the greater majority and that we can come together and do what's best for the people that are uh, really hurting and really need those issues addressed. It, it seems like a lot of that takes leadership, right? I mean, it, yes. it, this, isn't, this isn't that complicated, but it is hard. Um, you know, I don't know what kind of outreach the state party or Governor Hochul's campaign did to Jumani Williams, for example, to say, let's have a unity rally, just, you know, remind people they might have voted for you in the primary, they might have voted for me, but everybody's got to come out and vote, you know, Democratic in the general election. They never did that. I know Governor Hochul had all sorts of even more issues with Tom Swazi and his primary challenge, and he was very, you know, uh, sexist towards her and demeaning and extra ways. (laughs) Real extra. Maybe that would have been on him more. I don't know how many votes any of this is moving, but in terms of showing Democratic unity, in terms of reminding Democratic voters there's an election coming up and everybody needs to get out. These things seem to be missing and it just seems to come down to sort of what is what are the people in leadership doing to sort of put some of the power struggles aside when it's time to, you know, come together. Is it more complicated than that? Am I am I missing something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do think, yes, it is a leadership issue. Right. And but it's also remember, people are individuals. Right. And so people's um, a response in terms of how they people aren't some people aren't unreasonable to that. If that call would happen, if that um, conversation would be put before them. They're like, okay, let's, you know, let's move this forward because I know, you know, Zeldin, I know we don't want that. I know we don't want this. Like, how do we can come together and then being able to discuss, you know, w- what's the best way forward and what can we get out of this? You know, the greatest thing in politics is being able to identify what's in somebody else's favor and in their best interest to bring them to the table, right? So it's like, okay, you know, we want this unity. We want to bring everything everybody together, what would be the best way to do that? Um, And yes, you might think it's for the greater good and it's for the people or whatever, but you got to sweeten the pot for some people, (laughs) like for some people in order to be that, give some people, let some people save face, let some people, you know, lead in instance. And that takes real leadership that sometimes you have to be the one to step back um, some or, or not the right messenger in order for the greater good to happen. And to your point, Ben, that is about leadership and knowing, you know, what pushes people's buttons, um, what can bring them to the table and being able to have that conversation with people. One of the things I've been saying um, a lot since before Election Day, well before Election Day, is that Governor Hochul wasn't really running on anything sort of new or 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 very much sort of forward looking. I'm wondering if you agree in terms of 
sort of the campaign that the governor ran that, yes, it was important, obviously, to focus on the fact that she was going to continue to protect reproductive rights and health care in New York. And Lee Zeldin has been anti-abortion for his you know whole, whole career. Um, clearly, that's important to point out. Clearly, it's important to point out that Zeldin voted against the uh, election results and has been a Trump ally. Clearly important to do that. But you have to give people more than that, I think, especially when you're trying to fight for some of the persuadables, when you're trying to draw people out to the polls who might not uh, again, you know, might have election exhaustion or might only vote most of the time in presidential years, and that there was no real forward-looking agenda offered. There were no new ideas. She seems to be saving it for her next state of the state, which you don't necessarily get if you don't win the election. Um, do you agree with that, or do you think the stuff they ran on was was good? They just needed to make a clearer case on things like public safety and and the economy. Yeah, I think it was good. I mean, to say and to speak to the moment and say, look what we've you know we've been able to accomplish. Look what we've been able to move forward. This is the style of leadership we need going forward. This is the type of, you know, uh, leadership we need going forward. What you have as an option before you has in history. They are telling you, you know, Zeldin is who he is and he is telling you who he is. Right. They are telling you who they are from their history, from their. And we do not want to go there. Right. I think that is a um, is a good you know, message in terms of being able to communicate that effectively and to say to people, not necessarily having a new, you know, program or a new idea to to tout, but is really to double down and really have confidence in that messaging to say, yes, we've been, you know, it's one of the frustrations I have about the bail reform piece in the overall public safety conversation. Um, when certain folks sort of are, are still on the, you know, put themselves on the ropes um, as it pertains to the bail reform. It's like, no, we were able over the last couple of years because of a change of leadership, we were able to do that and reframe what how we measure success in terms of public safety, that it's no longer about how many people we can lock up, but about how many people we can actually disengage from the criminal justice system and reintegrate them into society. And so our next steps then is to continue that work. And part of it is we have to fix the mental health, you know, the mental health infrastructure um, so that people can get the help they need, but also our communities can be safe. The next piece in here is to make sure that people have, you know, economic opportunity and sex success. And we need to create arm ramps for people to do that. So, you know, I want to be part of the party mm -hmm. that is not counting success by how many people are going to jail, but about how many people we can, you know, uh, enter the middle class here in the state of New York, which has the opportunity to do that more than any other state, right? <laughs> like so. Yeah. Also, I, I, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're getting at another key thing, which which is is similar to something also that you know that I and others have been pointing out, which is nobody's been defending the bail reforms, right? I mean, you you occasionally besides Latrice, besides Latrice, you know? Assemblymember Latrice Walker, who 
you know, again, if, if she's going to be the, the chief spokesperson and defender, then she should be even more all over the, the airwaves. And I guess that's part of what I'm getting at, which is, you know, Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, major champion of these reforms. Yep. Very, very reluctant to do public appearances. Right. And when he does do an interview, he defends, you know, the changes very strongly. But it's it's rare. There's there was a there's been a real vacuum on that. And that, again, is where the governor even with her message of, I, I made changes to the bail law in my one budget, she didn't even go around sort of saying, here's what I did, here's how it's gonna have an impact. There was just a vacuum. And Republicans have been running against bail reform since before it even got implemented, right? Well, and, so- and that's the party structure that we're talking about, right? Because then that's putting the infrastructure together. So, you know, I'll give you an example, right? Like, you know, me doing advising and stuff all over the country, right? I'm on a network of that has regular conversations about like, here's our messaging. We, you know, here are our surrogates that we're going to put out into these spaces. Um, and Assemblywoman Walker, like she don't need no talking points. She don't like, she doesn't need anything to defend defend, you know, what is right. And so to be able to consistently put her in these spaces to be able to talk it and for other candidates, right? Like, you know, to say, you know, you don't know how to talk about the bill reform in a way that really engages community. Fine. Well, Assemblywoman Walker, you know, will come to the Hudson Valley. She will come to the right, like to be able to create this coordinated structure to be able to um, not only educate people and other candidates about how to talk about it, but to make sure that we consistently have those surrogates and messaging happening all over the state. And then again, that pivot. Right. Because it's because if you stay there, you're consistently in the defense, you're consistently on the ropes. Like, how do we pivot next? Right. And being able to say, like, it's not just bail. We know it's not just the bail reform issue that is causing these issues. There's a lot of other issues. And in comparison to the rest of the country, which is seeing a rise in crime, you know, um, in a different way than we are in New York, we're doing much better. However, I understand and I know that when you walk outside of your door, you see more, you you visibly see it more, right? And so one of the problems with the, the issues that you see that more is because we have a failing mental health structure. And this is what we need to put in place. This is what we've done already. And this is why we need to reelect us because this is what we're going to do next in order to address those issues, right? So being able to pivot effectively, but having the infrastructure is really important because you can pivot all you want as an individual, but if you don't have an infrastructure to be able to, you know, uh, push that out across the state um, in a way that's helpful, um, then it's just falling on deaf ears. Last couple of questions for you, LJ Williams. Um, bring it back to, uh, as you said, where you're based, Brooklyn. Uh, and as I noted in, in introducing you, uh, head of the Brooklyn NAACP, um, there's a lot of talk both about the state party and then more specifically about the Brooklyn Democratic Party, that the Brooklyn Democratic Party doesn't do enough, doesn't really help candidates. Uh, that was part of the reason for several uh, losses in the state legislative races in Southern Brooklyn, that there needs to be a, you know, sort of a separate Southern Brooklyn strategy of sorts. This gets at some of what you're saying about how there needs to be cohesiveness around message and then tailoring it, you know, mm-hmm. to specific areas, perhaps. Um, but broadly speaking, 
does the Brooklyn Democratic Party need uh, its own intervention here? I mean, this is the, the most Democrats in any county in the state and, and uh, in the top in the country. I think only one or maybe two bigger in the country. Um, what does the Brooklyn Democratic Party need to do here, if anything, to sort of reset and reevaluate its own uh, doings? So I think, there, you know, there's a two prong um, piece earlier when I talk about there's a difference between people who really want to um, really want to work and engage and may have some nuanced differences and things, but can be brought to the table for a conversation versus people who just want to dismantle and destroy. And I think that is what's, um, you know, my assessment. And again, I am not as deep entrenched, um, even being from Brooklyn and the Brooklyn, I just recently got back on county committee because I saw all the noise and was like, what's happening? <laughs> like, I mean, like what, what is going on? That meetings can't happen. This is insane. So, but but it it is that um, that duality that's happening. There are people who just are seeking to destroy or want to be the people in power. Um, that is always the power struggle in politics. And then there are people who can be brought to the table. And I think um, the infrastructure standpoint of actually engaging people and building an infrastructure to be able to support campaigns um, and candidates um, throughout the borough is sorely needed. Um, looking at the financial health of a party um, that I don't think gets written about that there, that was inherited, right? Like to be able to put a party on financial footing takes a lot. And so for some of the folks who are complaining about the lack of resources. Well, you got to have resources to begin with in order <laughs> to be able to uh, provide support to folks. And I think that's that's one aspect. And that's why I think the larger state party can be helpful for some of the parties across this uh, across the state to be able to um, assist with that. Um, what are some of the things that the state party can take on, you know, that local parties don't have to, you know, fund or sort of invest in themselves? Um, so my suggestion, um, you know, would be to to focus on that and being able to identify the places where you can find common ground, knowing that there are still going to be the darts thrown. Um, but, you know, the way to manage out of that is to build confidence that you're trying to build a stronger party to actually really invest in folks. And, you know, South Brooklyn, I, 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 <laughs> I have loves for South Brooklyn. And I, um, similar to what I said about other parts of the state and talking to folks who are in rural parts of the state and also Long Island, you know, people do feel um, a kind of isolation um, and that they're not being heard in terms of what their region needs um, and being able to bring their voices to the table um, for a cohesive and stronger party is certainly needed. Um you, you mentioned earlier, black voters remain a bedrock of the Democratic Party. Uh, clearly, black voters were key to Governor Hochul's win. You could see that just by looking at a map of the results. There was also an analysis of some of the uh, assembly districts in the in the city by The New York Post uh, that showed the immense uh, margins in many of those heavily black districts that went for Hochul and, and basically um, won her the election. That being said, the Democratic Party is having challenges, speaking of Southern Brooklyn, with maintaining support among Asian and Latino voters. What needs to be done from the Democratic Party, whether it's the governor, whether it's the state party, whether it's the Brooklyn party, whether it's local candidates to stop that shift? Um, are there things that, uh, from your assessment, 
Latino and Asian voters are just not getting from the Democratic Party. We could point to obviously uh, rises in hate crimes against Asians. That's also seems to be at play with uh, some of the shift in Orthodox Jewish voting, although they seem to be much, you know, leaning much more Republican over the course of a number of elections, um, education policies and so forth. But do you um, do you have a sense of what the difference is there and what Democrats could be doing to, to stop that movement of Latino and Asian voters away from the Democratic Party and towards the Republican Party? Two quick things. I think one is overall engagement. People do not come to your party if you're not engaged with them, if they don't know about it. <laughs> right. And so I do think that that goes back to the overall thing of how is outreach and organization and mobilizing being done in all aspects um, across the state um, and particularly in the city where we're talking about a growing Asian population, particularly in the city, particularly in Brooklyn um, and the ever growing Latino population. Um, you know, people aren't going to engage if they're now outreach to. Um, and we see that even with uh, general voters, like people aren't going to come out to vote if they don't know vote uh, an election is happening and people aren't speaking to them. Um, two, I would say what I don't want that um, to happen is that people take for granted black voters in the state either. Um, and to think as I was that, asking the question, I was I was <laughs> thinking about working that in because, it, you yeah. know, Part of part of my question is it was was almost saying that, and I don't want to say that, but I would. But right. I, that's because the, the well reality. Taken, yeah, and the reality is that that has always happened. I mean, we've seen that on a national front and as well, right? The black voters are going to come out for us anyway. We just need to, and we see that happenings in campaigns, even in the last campaign, right? They're going to come out for us anyway. So all we need to do is, you know, do some robocalls and they'll be fine, right? And not that there needs to be, again, more engagement and overall organizing in a lot of these uh, in a lot of communities in order to pull back. And again, it goes back to the thing I said before, we're still in an eight to one situation where most people are going to be registered. They have self-selected they themselves, nobody checked the box for them. They have self-selected as um, identifying and their political ideology is a democratic political ideology, right? So people have already self-selected to be a part of. And so being able to speak to people and being able to bring them in, right? So not just dictating and telling people, you know, this is what's happening, but bringing people in and engaging them and making their voice valuable. So don't take black voters for granted. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they were essential to the win. Um, and it's important that you make sure that Black folks stay at the table, even as you are expanding the table to include more voices. A perfect uh, note to leave it on there. Uh, we, we leave it there. Thank you for the time. Eldroy Williams, Democratic strategist, president of the Brooklyn NAACP and host of Sunday Civics on Sirius XM. Thank you for all the time and thoughts. Appreciate it. Enjoy uh, the upcoming holidays and, and be well. Thanks, Eljoy. Thanks. No problem, Ben. <laughs> <laughs>